so this morning, uh, I want to open up by starting and talking about my son, uh, Micah. Um, Micah and I uh, are uh, two peas in a pod. Uh, we recently went on vacation, and uh, somebody's like, what? You don't like that saying, Colby? Kobe's uh, like ridiculing my message already. That's my son. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm already getting heckled, and we're like one minute into this. All right? But uh, we recently were vacationing, and another dad was like, man, it, it seems like you guys just click together. And I'll tell you what, that's what makes it the hardest to deal with Micah, because he's most like me. Um, and, and I struggle with myself, and I find myself oftentimes having to keep Micah from doing really silly, uh, stupid things. And that's the role Heather actually plays for me. Uh, and so, um, and that, I'm, that's not even a joke. That's like written truth. Um, but uh, even more than that, as my kids have grown up and I've witnessed uh, other kids, I got to sit with a bunch of high schoolers yesterday and just observe their conversation. Um, and it's funny to me, as, as kids get a little older, they seem to think that they have everything figured out. Right? They seem to think that they've, uh, they've got it all figured out. They know what they, they're, they're going to do. Uh, they know uh, what, 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 you know what's best or, or how to do something way more than somebody who's more uh, you know, seasoned in it, I guess you would call it. Uh, but the best is, is whether it's a project or a physical feat that needs to happen or um, something that they don't have knowledge or haven't learned yet in their life. Um, uh, it, it, something that's maybe hard for them to do. And, I, and what's hard for me to do in, in those situations, especially with my own kids, to just step back and let them figure it out. Like, to just step back and, and let them maybe learn a lesson or do something wrong the first time. Because oftentimes the conversation goes something like, you know, do you got that? Like, are you able to do that? Like, do you need some help with that? And then uh, the, the answer is almost always, no, I got it, I got it, I got it. But to step back and allow them to learn in those situations. Uh, we last, uh, a year and a half ago, two years ago, we did a just parenting conference. And they called that helicopter parenting, where you step in and do it for your child all the time. Uh, and, and I was just reminded of that, uh, of that idea, is that lessons there, or lessons our children's, or even lessons our ability, if we step in and, and do something that they could learn a lesson in, it lessens our ability to grow. It lessens our ability to grow, and oftentimes... Uh, you know, I find myself trying to step in and even just do something for my children where they could learn how to do it themselves by even getting it wrong uh, at, at some point or not. Um, and then, obviously, uh, there's the times where I've stepped back and let them do it, and then they've done it, and then I've just praised them, like, oh, man, that's awesome, that's great. And then they look to do that all the time, to impress me or prove something to me or earn some sort of respect or clout. Uh, and I think sometimes that's worked out where even uh, they've gotten excited just at the idea of impressing their dad or impressing or, uh, or, or uh, earning the respect of their their dad. Um, and, and it got me thinking as I was studying for this message uh, the last few weeks, it got me thinking uh, about, you know, the same thing is actually true for us as adults, um, that uh, oftentimes our sense of pride or accomplishment or our desire to be self-sufficient uh, in life, um, uh, 
to use what I've got to accomplish all that I need to do. Like I find myself often trying to get to that point of relying on my own ability, my own strength, and my own uh, way I can do that. Um, and, as, and I feel like as kids, they exercise that muscle, like that muscle of doing something or learning something, and, and they exercise that, and they try to learn, and they try to grow in that area. And I think as, as we get older, and we'll get into this a little bit later, we like flex that muscle, like I got this, like I am it, and I've got it figured out. And we try so hard, and we work so hard to be self-sufficient. We want to establish ourselves uh, in, our, in, in confidence in our own ability uh, to get it done, get done what I need to get done. Uh, and then honestly, I think we struggle with that scenario when it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to allowing him to play a role in uh, an area or an aspect or a situation, a scenario in our life where we allow him to work and then in turn that it brings him in on it rather than uh, than than I just doing it myself, like doing it, you know, pulling up my bootstraps and getting it done on my own. And, uh, and I feel like that scenario with God is how we, uh, as believers in Christ, play that out. And, and, uh, and that's what I want to talk about this morning, this idea of wrestling with uh, relying on our own strength to get something done or allowing God to be uh, a part of it. Uh, and, 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 and in all honesty, we operate in a better manner when we include and allow God to be in on it with us, whatever it may be, whether it be learning a lesson, something we've done for 20 years one way, and he's asking us to do it a new way, or whether it be new things that we're learning in our lives. Uh, two weeks ago when I shared with you guys, I gave you the biggest flyby of David's life. So I said, you know, uh, this is David's life from this day to this day, and it was, it, you can go back and listen to it. It's a, just a recap of his entire life, his rise to being a king, and his hiding in caves, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but this morning, we're going to look in again on the life of David. And I want to encourage you with this, because David in the Bible is, is like the most prominent character other than Jesus. So I think like Jesus is mentioned like 878 times, and Christ is mentioned like 737 times in the Bible, uh, and then together that's like 1,500 times Jesus Christ is mentioned in the Bible. David is the second most character, person, uh, mentioned in the Bible at just over a thousand times David is mentioned throughout Scripture. And I think for us, we can learn a lot from David's life. And, and not only that, I think what we, what we can do a lot of times with uh, the stories in the Bible is we can learn a lot from the people in the Bible, but we can also learn a lot from each other. We can learn a lot from a lesson that, you know, you guys learn, that I observe or that you share as part of your ministry or part of the way God's working or how you've allowed him to work. I can learn that lesson without walking a path that I didn't need to walk, right? And so I think with this, we can learn uh, a lot from David uh, in, in what we're going to look at this morning. Um, today we're going to look at the end of David's life, the end of David's reign as king uh, in Scripture. Uh, and I, and I got to start off by telling you this. I'm going to give you just a, a, another brief uh, flyby. Uh, David, this is the same David that Samuel came and anointed to be the next king of Israel. 
This is the same David that brought a rock to a sword fight to kill a giant when his warrior brothers wouldn't step up. This is the same David that observed Bathsheba on the hillside and then, uh, and then in that uh, sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and all that kind of stuff, but then also experienced God's grace and mercy uh, during that time as well. This is the same David that rose to be a king uh, but then also had his own struggles throughout his reign as king, right? And so we're going to look at that David and the end of his reign as king in his time that's recorded in Scripture. And at this time when he was king, Israel, God's people, still struggled with the cycle that we continue to struggle with today, putting God first or allowing God to be a part of what, what he wants to do in our lives, right? The cycle of putting ourselves, our own desires, our own wants, our own abilities, our own strength, what we want uh, above what God might want in our lives, or at least maybe to the side in, in, in lessening what the authority that God uh, desires to lead us through in our lives. And at the end of David's reign uh, as king, we pick up at the beginning of 2 Samuel Chapter 24. So if you want to, you can jump on your phone super easy. You don't have to flip through all the pages. But if you've got a Bible, you can open up to 2 Samuel. Most of the verses will be up here uh, on the screen. 2 Samuel 24. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, and I, th I think we're going to get, you know, down into verse 33 at the end or whatever. But um, it says this in 2 Samuel 24, 1. Uh, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And I want to stop there for a second because this is that cycle that the Israelites, that God's people were going through that I think we still continue to struggle with, and it's why we're talking about what we're talking about today. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, it, it is clearly mapped out that God's people wanted a king to replace God uh, as their authority and treasure of what they desired. So at the, if you read 1 Samuel, that's what that struggle is. They wanted a king to replace their God. All right, And then you've got the book of kings where kings rise and fall, and it says there in Scripture that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then they anoint another king, and it's a cycle that goes over and over and over of God's people putting something else in the place of where God wants, uh, God wants for them or, or operating on the, under their own desires in their lives. All right. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, pseudo-commander, uh, at that time David really was the commander, who was, uh, who was with him, Go through the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord the king still uh, see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Job, so he basically told Job, go and count. Uh, Joab, the commanders of the army, Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king and numbered the people. And so what, what God, it sounds like, and we'll get to this in a second, what God said is go, go count all the able-bodied men that are going to fight in the war, whatever war is going to go on, whether they're going to pick a fight or they're going to have a war or whether they just want to know how strong they were. Go and number all the men. Ah, and there's two things that I directly want to address about this 
this morning that I feel God wants us to understand. One is the big theme for us this morning. If you haven't picked up on it, it is trusting in anything other or more than God gives God nothing to work with. And so um, if we go ahead and do things under our own control, under our own strength and our own ability, we've just done whatever we want to do and we've eliminated God. We haven't even given him anything to work with because we've just ran out ahead and done it ourselves. And that being said, God, and we'll get to this, God can work with nothing. Um, he will work with nothing. But uh, when we do it ourselves, we eliminate God. So Job said, but Job said this, uh, Joab said this, not Job, Joab. Uh, may, the, uh, may the Lord your God add to the, uh, to the people a hundred times as many as there are. So he's saying, man, who cares about counting? May God multiply our people over and over so we, so we don't even have to worry about it. While the eyes of the Lord, uh, my Lord, the king, still see it. But why does my Lord, the king, delight in this thing? Um, and I believe it's very easy for us to delight in a lot of things in our life. Um, right? To delight in, uh, in, in, in different things that we've accomplished, different ways we've uh, accomplished, different things we've built up in our lives. Uh, and and if, if you were to close your eyes and think about it, what, what is it that you delight in? Uh, maybe it'd be your family. Uh, if you have a house, maybe it'd be your house. Maybe it's your work and your job that you've worked to uh, uh, establish and, 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 and achieve. Uh, maybe it's your position or status that you have in a certain area of your life. Uh, maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's your retirement. Maybe it's your security. Uh, maybe it's your, uh, your status in your community. Maybe it's your sphere of influence. Man, you've heard me say that a lot. Maybe it's the amount of people that I influence for, even for God, or, or for whatever reason, right? Oftentimes, uh, we, we truly, if we really think about it, those areas in our lives that we delight in, how often are we actually really thanking God for those areas? Like, taking the time to be like, you know what? Man, God, that is amazing how you've blessed me with this, that, or the other thing. Because... I don't know about you, oftentimes I, I, I fall into the trap of just being like, man, I've worked really hard for that. Like, I've worked really hard to establish this, this rock that's in my life, whether it be family or whatever, right? But how often are we really uh, thanking God or acknowledging God for what, that he, what he's given us in our lives? If we look at the life of David, uh, David accomplished a ton in his life, right? A ton in his life. Uh, and a lot of that, without doubt, we know from Psalms and we know from the stories that are written in Scripture that David made it very clear that it was God and he saw God. Like, God, it was a, a God thing, right? People say that often. Um, God moments. And, and I think that if we look back over our lives, we can think of the, the times in our life where it's been very obvious that God has done something amazing. It's unmistakable, right? And those are great moments, but in actuality, all the little things that we've looked, that we've achieved, that we've worked for in our lives are actually all God moments. They're all ways that God has blessed and directed us uh, in our lives. And if we, even if, 
Even if, even if those God moments, I don't know, I won't make you raise your hand, but how often have you found that like God did something amazing in your life and then time only allows that thing to be something that happened in your life, not necessarily something that God did in your life, right? Well, that happened to me. And, and when it happened back three, four years ago, uh, that was like something God did in an amazing way. And now it's like, well, you know, that happened in my life and, you know, and that was just a time of my life but there was a lesson or a way that God worked. And, and we see that actually in this. 2 Samuel verse 3, it says, Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add uh, to the people a hundred times as many as they are. While the eyes of my Lord the king still see it, why does my Lord the king delight in these things? David, over his reign as king, had built one of the strongest armies for the Lord, even doing his work, fighting the battles. And, and in this scripture, we see that David had placed his trust in, in his trust in what was to come in something other than God. Right? He had placed his trust in the size of his army, in the number of people that he would have in battle or or to establish rule and reign at whatever was to come that was next. And, and, and we know this because if we fast forward to verse 10, David says these words, right? He says, uh, but David's heart was struck, struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. These are David's words about uh, the trust that he's placed in the number of his army rather than trusting that God was going to get him through uh, whatever it was that he was faced, that he's faced with. And so my question for you, what in your life right now brings you delight? Can you think of it? Like, if you were to really close your eyes and think about the things in your life, what do you delight in? What brings you joy? And what have you accomplished that you're like, you step back and you think, ah, oh, that's amazing. I've accomplished this. And, 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 and you might say, you might say, Jason, I get it. But that isn't necessarily a bad thing. To, to delight or to have accomplished something that you're proud of uh, in your life. And I wouldn't disagree with you. I'd say, no, you're not wrong in that. It isn't always uh, a bad thing, or it isn't a bad thing really at all. I would totally agree with you. But much of what you delight in might, be very, might very well be from uh, and delivered by God. But I want to show you something, and, and, and I stumbled on this uh, because, I, again, I love David's life. I love, I, I love the, the characters in Scripture that don't always get it right because I relate to them because I oftentimes don't get it right. And, and so David's one of those lies, and, and, I, and I stumbled on this, and I love learning from Scriptures and choices, but obviously uh, David knew that he had lined his heart the wrong way. He asked for forgiveness for God for the foolishness of, of trusting in the army, uh, but he had placed, uh, that he had placed whatever misappropriated value in the trust in the side of his army rather than God. But here's the deal. Listen back to this. First, 2 Samuel verse 1, this is great. Again, the anger of the Lord 
It's actually kind of controversy, not necessarily great. But uh, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. Go and number Israel and Judah. And so if you read that scripture, you, you know that God incited him to go and count the number of his army, right? Now, all throughout scripture, David's story is written in the pages, and we get to know his life. In another part of scripture, um, uh, David, David's life is recorded as well. It's First Chronicles, right? And so uh, uh, this is, this is uh, and, and you might even say, well, you know, that's actually, as a, as a ruler, as a king with an army, like it's good to know the number of people in your army so you know whether you can go into a battle with confidence, right? So it's not even necessarily a bad thing, but listen to this. In First Chronicles 21, verses 1 and 2, then state, Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go and number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. Does that make sense to you? In 2 Samuel, it says, anger, uh, the, the anger of the Lord kindled, uh, kindled against Israel, and he, the Lord incited David to go and count the army. But in 1 Chronicle, it says, Satan stood against Israel and incited David to go count the army. So which is it? Was it, was it God or was it Satan? Or is this one of those times that the Bible contradicts itself? <gasps> no, never. The Bible never contradicts itself. And so what's written here is an action that both God and Satan are involved in, right? God, uh, and, it, and it's not a contradiction, God incited David to go count his army. Satan worked in a way to allow David to stumble into counting his army. In, in, in finding strength in the number of his army rather than strength in what God was going to be trusted with. Right? That David was going to trust God in it. So it's not a contradiction at all. It's actually allowing this slippery slope of what we call idolatry, putting something before God. And here's what I know to be true about that. When God is doing a work in your life, who's working overtime? Satan, right? When God's doing something and actually directing you to do something, oftentimes the enemy is trying his hardest to derail you from doing that, right? Is it just me? No? So that's what's happening here. God's saying, hey, go count your army, and Satan's saying, go count your army, right? You powerful man, you person that has built this strong thing. You've done all the work that you need to do to accomplish what you need to accomplish. And we see in the pages of Scripture here that actually, for a moment, Satan went out. And David stumbled. And he asked for forgiveness. Again, yet David knows forgiveness and grace of God. And David actually recognizes it. And so for you, I, I would ask that question not only do you recognize what you've accomplished or what you want to achieve in your life or what you have achieved in your life, but do you recognize where maybe you've placed something that's not necessarily bad, like 
helping people or, or doing acts of kindness or you've allowed that or attending church. You've allowed that to be the focus rather than trusting in God to speak to you or do something in your life. Because this is old David. This isn't young. This isn't young took a rock to the Goliath David. This is old David. He's learned his lessons. And so he, uh, he in that moment, boasted in himself rather than boasting in what God desired or the trust that God wanted him to have. First Peter 4.11 says this, If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. That our boast, that our, that our, uh, that our battle won, that our uh, allowing God to work is what we boast about, not about what we've accomplished or what we can do on our own strength and in our own ability. I want you to do something for me right now. I want you to just open your hands and look at them. You can set, I actually need you to set down your coffee or your cell phone or whatever you've got in your hands because my analogy doesn't work if you have something in your hands. Because here's the deal, and I know this is weird. I don't do weird things that often. But actually, I, yeah, that's, that's stricken. Uh, we'll erase that from the record. Um, I do weird things far too often. Um, put your finger on, no, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Um, that would be weird. Um, if you look at your hands right now, um, they're empty, right? There's nothing in them. That is what you have to offer God. You have nothing to offer God. And I know that that sounds like, that sounds hard. Like, that sounds like, really? Like, I have nothing I can offer God? Really? Other than your open and empty hands, right? And oftentimes in Scripture, uh, it's painted the picture that God reaches for us, right? That God reaches out for us. And that analogy for me, if I had something in my hand and God reached for my hand, I couldn't grab a hold of it, right? Right? I'd have something in my hand. And so what God desires from us is nothing but ourselves, empty-handed Nothing we've built up, nothing we've accomplished, nothing we've, uh, we've worked really hard to achieve that, you know, that we're holding on to as something we've done. Like, no, empty hands is what he desires from you. You can put your hands down. You don't have to hold it there. That would have been cool if I would have just made you hold it there the whole time. Um, but I also want to understand a reality because here's the deal. Probably most of our lives, and I think most of us at some point in our lives, maybe even just in recent times, recent memory, recent emotions, we have, you have, we, I mean, I say you, but I mean we, like I have felt this as well, um, that we really don't have anything to offer. Like, I really don't have anything to offer. And, 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 and honestly, uh, I'm not going to lie to you and say, oh, yeah, you know, if you feel like you're rock bottom and you really don't have anything to offer, you've got it better because nothing's in the way, right? That's not true. That's not true. 
It's hard to be in a position where you feel like you have nothing to offer God or anyone in your life. And that is a tough spot to be in. And I want to tell you that honestly, like I can, I can relate, but maybe not as much as the emotions that you're feeling in your life. I, I know what it feels like to be empty, to be at a point where I've made decisions like David or whatever to put myself in a position where I feel like I have nothing to offer. And it's a real spot to be in. And much like the world does a great job of, um, uh, and when we're at that point, when we're at that point, um, we believe, how could anyone love me? How could anyone desire anything from me in this state that I'm in of nothing to offer? How could anybody want anything to do with me in the current reality that I am in? And I, and I want you to look at me right now, okay? I want you to look at me, because here's the deal. God loves you. God loves you. He desires to be with you. He desires to be in relationship with you. Even in the feeling of having nothing to offer, God desires and loves you in a way that no one else can and without any boundaries. And how do we know that? Scripture tells us, and, and, and we know this very well because this is it, God loves us because of who he is, not because of what we can offer him. God loves us because he is the creator of all things, the author of all things, the one that wants to work everything together. God loves us because of who he is, not because of what we can offer him. And if we look at 1 John 4.19, it says, we love because he first loved us. Right? Two weeks ago when I talked about David, I talked about the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross far before we had committed any of our sins. That love was displayed in that. We love because he first loved us. God is the creator and the starting point of everything. He loved us when we were nothing and definitely loves us when we have nothing to offer and will continue to love us whether we feel like we've accomplished little or lots. Right? Our worth is not defined by our contribution. Our worth is not defined by our contribution. It's defined by the price we were bought with. It's defined by the blood that, out of love, Christ gave for our purchase. Jesus explained our worth, I think, really wittedly, witted, 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 making up words, uh, in Matthew 18, 12. He taught a lesson about 99 sheep. 99 sheep secure in a pen, uh, that he, he was a shepherd. The shepherd was there with his 99 sheep, and 99 sheep are a lot of sheep 
And I fall asleep at like sheep seven, so I don't ever get to 99, but there was 99 sheep in a pen, and one wandered off. And God displayed his value for that one sheep. That, that one sheep had very little to offer. Very little value. I mean, he had 99, like it was probably destined anyways to lose its life to the wolves in, 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 in the darkness at that time. And he taught this, this parable of the value of him going after the one that had wandered off. That is a depiction of the value that God has for you. When we feel especially weak, undervalued, empty, we have to remember that without God, we actually are incomplete. That uh, all that we might have or all that we uh, might do or not, all that we have might have or might not have is incomplete, separate from God. When we feel like we don't have anything left, when we feel like we don't have the strength, when we look, uh, look at all the things and, and everything we have amounting to nothing, of no value, we can find our value in the one who created us. Right? 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast it all the more gladly about my weakness— this is Paul writing this, so that Christ's power may rest on me. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Admitting in our hearts that we are empty is not a weakness. Admitting that we don't have the strength, that we don't have the ability to get it done is not a weakness. It's an opportunity for God to display his power and work far greater than if we were to just do it ourselves. In our weakness, in our, in our recognizing our weakness, God fills in the gap. Verse 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, about how I fall short, so that Christ's power rests on me. That Christ's power fills in the gap. Right? Many of us see reaching out for help or reaching out towards God uh, is a weakness, is admitting that, I can't get it done, or I can't follow through, or I can't hit the mark, or I can't accomplish what it is what I want to accomplish on my own, even though I've tried really hard to accomplish and to build and all that kind of stuff. It's not. There is power in, it, in, in reaching out and allowing God to work. There is power in allowing God to do a mighty work in our lives. There's ultimate power. There's power in admitting and allowing God's people to come alongside you in unique ways and, do you, and, do, and fill in where they're gifted and you're less gifted and, and us working together as God's body, right? And there's ultimate power in allowing God to work in those areas and fill in where he is perfect. There's a final lesson that David leaves us this morning, and I want, I want to leave it with you. If you read 2 Samuel, there's a point in there where there's punishment. God's punishment comes on Israel for their, uh, their um, desire to put something above God. And, you, and, we, and we oftentimes can read through the Old Testament and be like, well, man, God was a lot. I don't like Old Testament God, right? I like New Testament. I like, I like baby Jesus the most. But I like Old Testament God, right? 
I mean, I like New Testament, Jesus, because he's like loving and caring and, and all that kind of stuff, right? But Old Testament, God, man, there's some punishment there. And here's the deal. In 2 Samuel, the track that God's people are on is clearly laid out all throughout earlier in the Old Testament that they're going to go down the wrong path. And so God uses some punishment to direct them in a certain way. And oftentimes in our lives, when, we, when we're at that point where we're trajectories going the wrong way, it's not going to be primrose golden path all the time that God's going to lead us back. There's going to be some growth, and there's going to be some maturing. There's going to be some loss. There's going to be some things that happen. But uh, in Samuel, uh, there's a lesson that David leaves us with. Um, and, 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 he, and he says in there that I'd rather fall under God's uh, rule, uh, fall to God, than I'd fall to man. And he's talking about, I'd rather uh, fall and in, 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 in admit my weakness, admit what I've got going on to God, rather than to fall in the judgment of man. And I think that that is so incredibly true. Man's judgment is far worse than God's judgment. And that's a whole nother message on shame. And, and yeah, anyways. Um, but um, here's the deal. It was never about... Uh, it, it, our sacrifice in those moments is never about our sacrifice. It's all about Christ's sacrifice for us and, and the work that he did, right? And that's what messed it up. An animal sacrifice, because what David did here is, he, is so what happens? At the end of 2 Samuel, uh, he realizes that he isn't right with God. And so Old Testament, they had animal sacrifice at that time where they would sacrifice a uh, uh, a uh, an unblemished uh, animal, and in that they'd make things right with God. And and here's the deal: it was never about the animal sacrifice, because what happened in the Old Testament, as we know, it became about the animal sacrifice. And the flesh of man messed that up. And then God's like, well, the only way to do it is is sending Jesus. And so um, that's like total like flyby as well. But um, but David wants to present an offering. And so he comes to this, the king replied to uh, Aranah, uh, no, I insist uh, on paying for it. And so this is what happened. Uh, David presents himself that he wants a threshing floor. Threshing floor is, is where you would sacrifice the animal and the blood of the animal would drip through and then be made right with God. And uh, he wants a threshing floor and he wants an animal. And this, this, this uh, servant of David's kingdom says, oh, I'm going to just give those to you. Like, I, no, you don't have to pay for those. You don't have to—I'm just going to give them to you. And David says, no, I insist on paying for them. I will not sacrifice to, the, to uh, the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the ox and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. And I think for us, oftentimes it's really easy for us to give what uh, is not of high value for us in our lives. Like, I will give to God all day, every day, the things that don't cost me much. The things that I really don't have to sacrifice. All the time. You're like, oh, I'm trusting God in that. Like, I'm actually kind of killing it there. Right? But it's the things in my life that, uh, that are really hard to trust Him with. Raising my children, my marriage, uh, decisions I make when nobody's watching, uh, cutting corn, I mean... Those things in my life that are hard to give up, I'm going to hold on to those because the value, the value is, the work, the value is far too high. Like I want to rely on myself and my own strength to do this. And what David does here, and I think what we can learn from, is, is the things of high value God desires for us 
to give those things to him. Because he knows that those are the things of our hearts. Those are the things that are controlling our minds. Those are the things that actually have more rule and reign on our lives on a daily basis than the little things. And so David says, no, I'm not going to sacrifice to God that that which costs me nothing. We're quick to give away what doesn't cost as much of anything, but what costs us the most we're not willing to offer. It was never about, it was never about what is offered. And it was never about what sacrifices were made. It's about the sacrifice that Jesus made for each one of us. And he desires, because of that sacrifice, a life empty-handed, everything stripped away, open hands, everything we have given to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Van, if you want to come up. Lord, um, Lord, it is, it is without a doubt your desire to, to work in each one of our lives, Lord, in a highly relational, loving way, with high value and unending, never-changing love. And so this morning, I pray for myself first, and I pray for my brothers and sisters, that we may understand a God that loves us with the greatest depth and of the greatest value than anything we've experienced in our lives. That despite what we have going on or what we've done, Lord, that it is your desire to be in personal relationship and to work with us and bring value to everything in our lives. Lord, so we, I pray, and you can pray along with me, we offer our lives to you empty-handed. Lord, we let go of all we've accomplished, everything we've built up, everything that, we, that we've like, like thought we've worked really hard to do. Lord, and we let all of that go and offer our empty-handed lives to you. Lord, and desire to have you work. So Lord, as we finish with these last two songs, may our hearts be open to that idea. And may you guide us into uh, intervening relationally with you with that, Lord. We pray this in your name.